Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 8 from The Return to the Hiding Place by Hans Poulet. Chapter 8, Call to Arms. In the final months of 1943, I was drawn more and more to resistance work since any young and able-bodied Dutchman had become fair game to the Gestapo. Many uh, small local resistance units had sprung up and carried on a wide range of underground activities. Most of these began as rank amateurs, but became professional in a remarkably short time. Once I had made up my mind, I moved quietly to become part of a group. A friend arranged to have my identity card altered at an underground falsification center. They would change my birth date and my occupation so I'd be less vulnerable to street arrests. As a 24-year-old assistant minister of the Harlem Dutch Reformed Church with a certificate to prove it, I would be, at least for the time being, exempt from deportation. Tante Kess was jubilant. She jumped at the chance to be more involved, and she asked me to operate from the Bayet. When Pickwick came to our place to visit his father on some underground matters, I had a long and private talk with him. We discussed where I might fit in and the type of work for which he could use me. He mentioned courier work, transporting ration cards and messages, that sort of thing. So I settled down and waited for further developments. In the middle of October, Mary, Yusi, and I returned to the Bayet. The days following were Jewish holidays, so we prevailed on Mary and Yusi to help out with housework chores only when really necessary. Consequently, I was kept very busy. The mood in the house had changed. We missed Thea, who had always been there at the right time and place, unobtrusively leading or lending a hand, unasked and diffusing growing tempers. <clears throat> I felt a growing lack of perspective, almost despair. The winter storms set in, and I knew that the good weather opportunities for an invasion had passed. This meant another winter under Nazi oppression, another season of darkness, terror, and fear, and somehow the house had become more open, less secure. Lindert, for example, came and went at his own pleasure. Tante Kess, charmed by his disarming and easygoing manner, didn't seem to mind, but the rest of us felt it was an unnecessary risk. More people came and went during the day or evening to bring messages, arrange underground matters, or just visit. One could hardly find a quiet place or some privacy anymore. Several guests passed through, most of them staying only a short time, but each needed to be told the house routine, the instructions, and the exercise for the alarm drill every night, and each one came with his or her own set of problems. Nell, who arrived the last week of October, stayed for several months. She was on the Gestapo wanted list 
and her husband was in the hospital. From the start, however, she was an excellent companion. In spite of her slight build, she turned out to be quite strong and tenacious. She never hesitated to help when asked or even unasked, and she was always ready for a joke or some teasing. She was inconsolable when she inadvertently damaged a washbowl and didn't rest before she arranged uh, through the Von Wardens for its replacement. She thought she was as rich as a queen when she was avoided the cubicle that Thea had occupied, and she invited us there one by one for a cup of tea and a chat. There was hardly enough space in it to turn around, but she was perfectly content. Ronnie Gazan was another va valuable addition to the group. When Lindert announced he wouldn't be needing shelter anymore, the Ten Booms decided they had room for another male. So Ronnie came, sporting a butterfly tie and pleasant manners. He immediately charmed Tante, Tante's Bep and Kess, who gladly offered him semi-permanent shelter. Handsome, quiet, handy, and helpful, he fit in easily. He had been on the run since August 1942, 14 months already, and as it and as a result, he had developed a patient attitude and took everything in stride. Ronnie could match Yusi in telling tall stories and Jewish jokes, and after the day's work, the five of us often gathered in the boys' room. In that small chamber, we temporarily forgot the harsh reality outside and enjoyed each other's company. The uncertainty of it all, however, stretched my nerves to the limit. With such a hopeless outlook, day after day, it didn't take too much to aggravate any of us. I longed for my new identity and the freedom it would give me to actively help my friends. And I yearned for mi Miss Me's uh, six event-filled Months had gone by, and our only contact was an infrequent letter. For security reasons, I could only write about neutral subjects. I couldn't share with her the agony we had gone through, except in the most general terms. She was so preciously close to me, yet so painfully distant. When I finally got a letter from her in October, I exploded. She was attending a teacher's college in Middleburg, and she wrote about the fun she had with her friends each day on the train ride to school. That completely innocent detail got to me. I could picture her in her disarming sweet seventeen innocence, enjoying the freedom and fun that I certainly wanted her to enjoy to the full. Yet that same freedom was unattainable and impossible for me. Suddenly I became insanely jealous of all those young people, unknown to me, but enjoying the pleasure of her company. I threw the letter on the bed and began pacing the room like a caged animal. Just then Yusi barged in, and when he saw my rage he asked, Hans, good friend, what's up? Poor soul, he then caught the brunt of my anger and frustration. When he heard as much as he wanted, he burst into laughter and stopped my litany 
in mid-sentence. Before I could turn my anger on him, he pushed me down on the bed and sat next to me. Now listen, my friend, he began. Let me tell you something. Here we are, safe and secure, while all around us, relatives and friends, are being arrested and killed. And you are furious because your sweetheart has fun? What's the matter with you? You must be insane. It was a bucket of practical cold water, and it cooled me down. Instantly, I sensed how unreasonable I had been, and I was embarrassed. It's not the fun that she has, but the freedom I want, I said lamely, trying to make a point. Ugenbush, poor soul, self-pity, my name is Hans. You see, cut me short. Then he reminded me of the day he heard how badly his pregnant wife had been treated at her hiding address and how in her condition she had to scrub and clean and do all kinds of dirty work. I had cheered him up this time. Show me your fiancé's picture, he ended abruptly. Admiringly, he tapped the photo. So this is your sweetheart? Where is your complaint? Gone. See? He was right. His down-to-earth logic diffused my anger, and I was ashamed of myself. I looked at her picture again and realized that my love for her was deeply beyond mere romance. Meanwhile, more and more Dutchmen were drawn into the underground guerrilla warfare. Some performed small but important tasks, such as distributing the underground news monthlies, papers such as Het Parool, de Warhe, G. Mottendry, Vert Nederland, and Tro gave us the real news. The latter was the voice of Christian resistance, and many families received it in their mailboxes with surprising regularity, but there, uh, put there by an unknown messenger. They in turn passed it on to others, who passed it on to others, spreading the word ten to twenty-fold. These underground papers called us to arms, and while many answered, many more remained on the sidelines. Millions of Dutch men and women wanted no part of it, afraid for themselves or for their families, perhaps, or for their future. They remained indifferent, with so many passing through and so many months to fe mouths to feed. The Bayet needed a steady source of ration cards and new places to send those seeking a place to hide. So it became inescapably part of the underground work. Tante Kess was a natural for it, and she thoroughly enjoyed it. She often left the details to me, and it gradually took up most of my day. Promising to find ration cards or a new address was one thing, Delivering the goods on time was something else. Providing and distributing or distributing new ration cards required the efforts and ingenuity of many underground workers. The cards were essential, but those who were hiding couldn't apply for them. So an underground group would raid a distribution center when new cards were ready to be handed out. Though terribly risky, such armed Raids became quite frequent, and 
Incredible numbers of ration cards were captured this way. That November, for instance, in the province of North Holland alone, raids yielded 317,000 new cards which were distributed to the hosts of those in hiding. Couriers carried the cards from town to town, running the risk of the unpredictable inspections which German, German patrols carried out on the roads and in the trains. With careful planning, however, the leaders often carried out their raids without shooting or killing. With more and more people in hiding each month, the demand for ration cards and for reliable hiding places became greater, but the ruthless reprisals of the Gestapo against those who had those who hid fugitives made many afraid to participate systematically by torture or threats or through undercover agents who penetrated the resistance networks. The Gestapo found these hiding places and in simultaneously simultaneous raids, they rounded up large groups of underground workers. These, in turn, became security risks, but others soon joined the ranks and filled in the gaps. The situation was developing into a full-size guerrilla war. Tante Kess had a spontaneous and inspiring approach to underground work, but her methods and serious disadvantages uh, sometimes she changed her mind after a certain move was arranged, causing a lot more work for others. Sometimes she unexpectedly decided to include an extra appointment in a mission, upsetting the timing. Uh, but her cheerfulness and her honest effort to make a mission succeed made working with her a pleasure. Her carelessness, however, remained a continuing source of concern to us all. All too often she lost small notes which held addresses or numbers or required ration cards or of required ration cards. We voiced our concerns to her in an, in no uncertain terms, and time and again she promised to do better. Our underground contacts multiplied fast. The Baye became a small part of a nationwide network of Christian resistance. The Landelite Organizite, or as it became known, the LO. Uh, in mid-October, just after we returned to the Baye, I got a taste of what I might be in for. My father miraculously escaped death. I knew he was active in the underground. Sometimes he'd leave unexpectedly, no explanations given, no questions asked. We didn't know what he did or with whom he worked, but apparently he was a key figure in the work of the LO in his Harlem district. District leaders in a region usually met regularly in secret to plan and prepare future actions in the region and to arrange for future regional needs. Such meetings were called the Exchange and several times my father was asked to represent his district, but he always refused because he considered such large meetings of key people an unnecessary risk. On Wednesday, October 13, he was asked to attend a meeting in Horn, but again he refused to go. That day the Gestapo 
which had been quietly piecing together bits of information, raided the meeting and arrested those present. As far as we knew, it meant the firing squad for all of them. The number of friends, acquaintances, and contacts we were losing from our Dutch Reformed circle was growing fast and dramatically, but still there was no end to the suffering. I was deeply grateful for my father's common sense, but it brought home to me the extreme personal risk that my involvement in underground work would entail. While waiting impatiently, I confess for my new identity card, I busied myself with chores around the bay. One evening, after a busy day, I went up to the boys' room to write to uh, Mies. Her birthday was coming, and with the postal service as bad as it had been over the past months, I didn't want to risk being late. That afternoon, Mary, with whom I shared many of my private thoughts and feelings, came to me and handed me a short letter in which she congratulated my sweetheart and asked me to include it in my own. When I finished my letter, I went downstairs uh, where everyone had gathered in the living room. What kept you so long? Tante Kess asked. I explained what I had been doing, and she immediately exclaimed, That's wonderful! I'd like to write her too! I replied enthusiastically, Oh, I'm sure she'll appreciate that, and I told her about Mary's note. Tante Kess got out a notepad, and then Ronnie got hold of it. He wrote a short note and passed the pad to Tante Bep, who quite willingly put in her share. By this time, Opa had put on his glasses and was ready. I also joined in sending my sincerest congratulations, he wrote in a firm hand, and so the notepad was passed around the table, each of my friends adding his or her greetings. When he finished writing, Grandfather got up from his chair and left the room. A few minutes later, he returned with a booklet. Here, my boy, send this to her, a small present from an old man to your fiancé. He handed me a copy of a booklet he wrote in 1937 when he, when the watch shop celebrated its 100th anniversary. Hern den Jin von it Udi Hollenmaker, Memories of an Old Watchmaker. I was embarrassed but delighted and touched by the personal gesture of this precious grandfather whom I loved and respected so much. I didn't know how to thank him. He waved away my attempts and said, Simply, we love you very much, so we love her too, and this is my way of saying it. English translation of the letter. And I'm looking forward to receiving an invitation to the formal engagement party. Best wishes, Tom Van Sevenhuizen, undercover name of Ronnie Gazan. Dear Mies, I wish you a happy birthday and a blessed year, a year of peace. It is so gizzling here, and we regret that you cannot drop in for a visit. I hope your birthday will be an enjoyable one. Maybe it will be possible for you to visit us after the war, which I hope will be soon. Warmest greetings from Tante Bep, Hans. I also join in sending my sincerest congratulations, Opa Tenboom. 
Dear Mies, I look forward to getting to know you. You have a very likable boyfriend, but don't tell him I wrote you so. We all love him very much. My best birthday wishes. God bless you with good health and at school, but especially with the wonderful assurance that you are Jesus' own warmest greetings from your Tante Kess. It was a very special letter that went out to my sweetheart on her 18th birthday and an exceptionally bright moment among those long dark days. On November 21st, my identity card finally came back. It took it looked perfect to me. My year of birth had been changed to 1919 without the slightest sign of tampering. I could see no erasures, and it had the same type of lettering and the same shade of ink. I silently blessed and thanked God for the craftsmanship and the cooperation of all those involved in this masterpiece of forging and falsification. My upbringing at home, in the Christian schools, and in church had provided me with sufficient knowledge of the Reformed theological seminaries and their specific doctrines to pass a superficial examination if there should be an unexpected Gestapo identity check in the streets. I was, therefore, relatively free to move around, and Tante Kess immediately enlisted me for almost all the courier work at hand. Now fully in her confidence, I went out on missions for her. We both enjoyed every minute of it. After so many months of imprisonment, I was excited that I could move outside again, <clears throat> and I was especially excited that I could serve my country. There was so much to do. I was immediately sent to take several score of ration cards to addresses in one of the suburbs of Harlem. This was the first of many similar missions. During one of these missions, carried out on a day when there was a warning out for Gestapo checks all over town, I was fitted out in a girl's uh, clothes, a scarf, and Tante Kess's bike. It happened regularly that the Tembooms couldn't hide those who came to the house for shelter because it was too full so I had to search for someplace else, then take them, often with their children and their scarce belongings, to a safer haven. Sometimes I delivered messages to other Harlem districts of the underground, warning them of expected Gestapo raids or passing on information such as the number of required ration cards. After some testing, I found a good spot to transact business. I would meet the anonymous messenger of the other district in the in entrance corridor leading to the Brostrigi, a small enclosure with houses for, in for the aged. At the agreed time, we met there, checked our security passes against each other, did our business as quickly as possibly, and dis disappeared again into the maze of streets. One afternoon, the war came closer than ever to the bay. A British pilot, whose plane had been shot down, parachuted safely, and the underground picked him up. When he came to the shop with his resistance contact, Henny immediately identified him 
identified them as strangers and pressed the general alarm button, we soon established their reliability, but Tante Kess was adamant. The pilot could not stay. She considered this too great a risk, a too active participation in the anti-German action. In a way, she was right. Assisting pilots to escape was punishable by death, just as possessing a gun was punishable by death, most times without a formal trial. She wanted nothing to do with it, and threw the responsibility to me. As I'd done before, I turned to Pickwick, our trusted friend. He listened to our plight, then called back an hour later with specific instructions. Early in the evening, I walked, pushing the bike with the pilot to the Ostradenland in a suburb of Harlem called Ardenhut. As Pickwick had indicated, I found a deserted tennis court and a small clubhouse with the door unlocked, and I left the pilot there. He was to spend the night there, and someone would pick him up the next day and channel him into the pilot's lifeline through Belgium and France, and we hoped on to freedom in Spain. As I cycled home, I thanked God for such competent help from underground friends, and I said a special prayer of thanks when this mission was completed without trouble. The incident helped Tante Kess to see that she would draw the line at armed resistance. Sheltering and helping people was one thing, but she wouldn't be involved in more violent resistance. We appreciated her reasons for doing so, and we respected her for it. As irrational as it seemed to me, she fully believed that as long as she sheltered and helped the hunted, she could count on the Lord to protect their home. Angels stand guard around this house, she kept saying. As I was drawn more and more into the underground work, I received requests for help that included the use of weapons. Gradually, in addition to my work for Tante Kess, I became involved in more militant work. Neither Tante Kess nor my parents knew anything of this. When I was out, they assumed that it was on one of, their on one of her missions, and fortunately, they didn't ask questions. Eventually, my involvement deepened. It began with fairly simple tasks, such as staking out a notorious uh, Harlem Gestapo agent, logging his arrivals and departures, thereby establishing the route he took uh, to and from Gestapo headquarters or the police station, etc. The resistance was considering his liquidation, but I soon moved to tasks such as exploring the layout of a distribution center for new ration cards in a village north of Harlem in anticipation of a raid on that center. My superiors gave me a small handgun to use in emergencies, and without my parents knowing it, I hid it behind the books on one of the shelves in my room at home. Nobody would expect it there, I thought, let alone search for it. Still, all this remained a sideline. Most of the time I was busy with missions for Tante Kess. The advent of Stinkerklaus, the annual Dutch day in 
the annual Dutch Day, an evening of gift-giving and family fun, brought a special atmosphere to the Bayet. We decided we'd treat the Ten Booms to some special gifts, but not exchange gifts among ourselves. I was free to move around, so I bought the gifts. The others worked on poems or surprise packages to go with the gifts. For days, an atmosphere of secrecy pervaded the entire house, but the evening itself brought us the greatest surprise of all. The Temboon family had a small present for each of us, and all of the guests had prepared gifts for each other. In spite of the gloomy outside circumstances, we had a hilarious evening. Down deep, we felt the power of close fellowship. We had been thrown together and were dependent on each other, and we trusted the gifts as tokens that told each other, we love you, and we all needed that. A Gestapo raid the next day brought us back to reality. They raided the house of a Dutch Reformed minister, Reverend Sertesma, one of the more outspoken anti-Nazi ministers of our church. His house and family were a center of spiritual and active resistance, but under pressure during interrogation, two young men had mentioned the address. When the Gestapo entered the house, Evert von Leidenhorst, uh, who was engaged to the daughter Bepsisma, happened to be there. Everett was heavily involved in resistance work, and assuming the Gestapo were after him, he jumped from the second floor window and fatally injured himself in the fall. I was stunned when we heard the news late that Monday. I had met Everett several times in the course of my missions, and I liked him. We had similar backgrounds and goals in life, and we trusted each other. I was new to the work, and I learned to rely on his experience and guidance. With his death, I lost a valuable comrade-in-arms and friend. The jubilee of the shop girl, Henny van Detzig, was a bright spot in those other wise, dark, and dreary December days. She had worked for the Tembooms for twelve and a half years and had become indispensable, tending the shop and its inventory and waiting on customers with her pleasant manners. In fact, she was considered almost a member of the family. Henny didn't want any special attention that day, but the Tembooms insisted. She was asked to come at 9 a.m. rather than the usual 8 to give us time to prepare. Even Grandfather got up earlier than usual, and Cocky Van Warden arrived in time to represent Newley's branch of the family. When Henny arrived, we greeted her with Langzelzelivin, Long May She Live, and Tante Bep welcomed her with a bank a bouquet of chrysanthemums and an affectionate hug. Then Opa took over. He recalled the day she had arrived and recounted how they had come to love her and value her assistance, both in the shop and in the home. He presented her with a certificate of appreciation for twelve and a half years of dedicated and competent service and with a personal gift. 
Henny was visibly overcome when Oprah hugged her. I know how much she loved the old man, so hearing him express his appreciation must have made her day even more special. After coffee and goodies, Tante Kess went downstairs to wait on customers and sent Henny home with the day off. Join me next time for Chapter 9, A Little Light in the Dark.